Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Four Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak, and this week my special guests are both Thomas Pagel, the Senior Managing Director of Governance for the USGA, as well as Rand Jarris, the Senior Managing Director of Public Service for the USGA. USGA and the RNA on Tuesday released their Distance Insights Project Report. We've been waiting for this guy for over a year. And in it, the two governing bodies of the game of golf basically lay out the reasoning why golf has a distance problem. We've kind of known this for a little while, but now... We've got the data to back it up, um, and we go into a deep dive in this podcast about everything that is inside the report, what you, the recreational golfer, should take away from it, what it's going to potentially mean for the PGA Tour, for elite golf, and recreational golf as well. So you're definitely going to want to listen to this. Get stronger, get longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Backbook, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the take-anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body primed for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. Now joining me on the Four Press Podcast is Thomas Pagel. Thomas is the Senior Managing Director of Governance, as well as Rand Jarris, who is the Senior Senior Managing Director of Public Service. Their titles are much more authoritative and sound much better than my humble title. Um, but be that as it may, Thomas, welcome to the show. Rand as well. I really appreciate you guys. We're recording this on Tuesday. The Distance Insights for Project uh, report has just been released. I know you guys have probably been talking with a lot of people over the last 24 to 48 hours, so I appreciate you making yourselves available. Thomas, what does a Senior Managing Director of Governance do on a day-to-day basis for the USGA? It, it, you know, it is a big title. It sort of it sounds uh, a lot more important than maybe it is. But, uh, no, Dave, thanks for having us. In, in my role, I oversee all of our areas of rules. So you think of the rules of golf, the equipment rules, rules of amateur status, rules of handicapping. All those departments sort of fall under an umbrella that uh, I help to lead. Uh, all of those teams work really collectively together because you think about the rules, codes, and how similar they are. Um, and, yeah, so at the end of the day, I just help support and lead those teams. And it's uh, one of those jobs that I'm not sure I ever could have dreamed of, but uh, it's a lot of fun, I tell you that. And, Rand, what does a Senior Managing Director of Public Service do for the USGA? Sure. So the USGA has uh, a number of services, products, uh, programs that we make available to the golf community. A lot of those are for uh, golfers, but the areas I oversee generally work with golf courses. So the USGA's green section, which is our uh, environmental and turf grass 
uh, uh, group, our research science and innovation team that we created just a couple of years ago, that's working on applying scientific principles and data to help solve golf's uh, solutions. Um, those are really some key programs, our regional affairs program that works with our allied golf associations uh, to distribute uh, those products and programs uh, out at the local level uh, to golfers and golf courses. Those are sort of key strategic areas of oversight. Um, I've been involved with the USGA Museum for more than 30 years now, so uh, I have a sort of a foot in the future uh, and a foot in the past uh, at the same time um, as we uh, uh, work across the organization. I had a chance to walk through the USGA Museum last Friday. Uh, we had a chance, obviously, the, the both of us, as well as Mike Davis, Mark Newell was on the phone to get together and meet and talk about the report. And the museum is great. If you're in New Jersey, if you have a little bit of time and you love golf, to be able to stop in there and see some of the things, you know, art, literally artifacts, as well as some of the best golf memorabilia you could ever hope to lay your eyes on. Um, the Ben Hogan room is great. The uh, Bobby Jones room, the Jack Nicholas room, all those things are, are amazing. The Arnold Palmer room, to be honest with you, is my favorite. Um, but let's get into a little bit of, about the Distance Insights project. And I suppose my first question goes to you, Rand, is what was the goal of the project itself when it was initiated and conceived? What were you trying to accomplish with this? Sure. I mean, in the simplest terms, we were trying to create and complete the most comprehensive study of distance in the game of golf. Um, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion uh, for decades uh, about this particular issue. Uh, there's a lot of opinions um, and a lot of perspectives. What we really wanted to do is pull together the data in an objective sort of scientific way, pull together the data on distance so that we could truly understand the issue better. We went into this with three fundamental questions that we wanted to answer, and I think we've done that. Those questions are, through time, what have been the key contributors to increased distance in the game? Uh, what have been the impacts or the outcomes of that increased distance? And then finally, we wanted to capture perspectives of various stakeholders across the game. Um, so those were really the, the three uh, organizing principles and organizing questions that drove the project. Where do you get historical data on distance and some of the things that are obviously embedded into the report? I can understand PGA Tour Shotlink does a fantastic job of giving you literally to the inch measurements on every shot, basically, that's hit throughout the season on the PGA Tour. And that goes back not quite 20 years, but but far enough where you can get some really good numbers there. And some of those things are measured on other professional tours. But if you want to go back, you know, the report goes back well over 100 years. Where do you find that data? Sure. You were very kind a, a moment or two ago to give a shout out to the USGA Museum. Uh, one of the uh, greatest assets of the museum, and, and I would argue that one of the great assets of the USGA is our library. Um, we have the most comprehensive collection of literature on the history of the game uh, anywhere in the world, and that library is an incredible resource for us as we do our work. Uh, it was central uh, to the success of the Distance Insights uh, research uh, that was completed. <clears throat> we literally went back into uh, all of the, I mean, and there are I should say, explain, there are thousands, tens of thousands, uh, close to 80,000 items cataloged in the library. We went into all of those books and looked for reports of hitting distance. Um, that could be a historical report of an early championship um, or an early golf tournament. It could be uh, books that describe and catalog uh, golf courses, sort of travel guides to golf courses 
that obviously were great sources of information about uh, increasing lengths of golf courses. Um, it could even be things like instructional books and articles uh, that will describe the typical hitting distance of a beginner golfer or a female golfer or a recreational golfer. Um, so, um, you know, we're fortunate to live in this day and age of digitization um, <clears throat> that accelerated some of our research, uh, but we were literally able to go into both digitized resources and, and paper copies, um, search for the word yards, and mm -hmm. you start to pull out thousands of reports on hitting distance um, that allow us to construct a pretty good history uh, of the evolution of hitting distance uh, for all sort of key segments of the game, and, and you'll find that in the distance and such report. So one of my favorite books about golf is Mark Frost's uh, The Greatest Game Ever Played, Harry Vard and Francis We Met in the Birth of Modern Golf. And if you haven't read that book, anybody who's listening to this, it's fantastic. It basically tells the story of Francis We Met um, winning the 1913 U.S. Open and beating, at that time, the two titans of the game. That's Harry Varden and Ted Ray. Um, and in that book, I remember specifically there are sections where Ray is described as being prodigious off the tee, really moving the ball. And when you consider the equipment that they would have been using in the day and what the fairways, what we, you know, what they considered fairway, we would probably consider rough by my modern standards. Um, there are several sections there and in other things that I've read throughout that period where golfers are described as hitting the ball 275 or 300 yards. Now these are wooden clubs, hickory shafts in many cases. Um, they're hitting golf balls that may or may not have actually been round or true and such like that. How confident are you when you're going through archives and where it's giving you descriptions about hitting distances and numbers and yards and all the things that you just described that the information that you're looking at is accurate? And how, I mean, it's one thing when under modern circumstances you're using lasers or you're having known points of an origin when someone tees off and you know where the ball lands and you can see yardage markers and you can get a pretty accurate distance. Back in the day, they didn't have a lot of these things. You know, so how do you make sure that the the information and the data that you're finding from his, historical things that are going back, as the report says, you know, a hundred years, that yeah, that really did sort of happen that way. That's a Dave, that's a really it's a really good question, and it's something that as a research team we talked about uh, throughout the process. Um, how can we be confident in the quality of the information? Mm -hmm. uh, some of that confidence simply comes from um, great numbers of data. Um, when uh, you know, we collected uh, close to 10,000 individual reports of hitting distances um, from that pre-1980 era, um, and you can start to go into that and look for uh, consistencies for patterns in the data, you'll note in the Distance Insights report that you know, we won't say something as specific as, you know, Ted Ray typically drove the ball 280 yards. Um, for each of the eras, we provide a range. Right. Um, and we can be pretty comfortable about providing a range uh, you know, and uh, 20 yards to 40 yards. So, uh, and, and by that, I mean the range. So, yep. you know, uh, a, a top golfer could drive the ball between 250 and 280 yards. Um, so we talk very broadly about ranges and you see how through time um, those ranges evolved. You know, you're absolutely right. There are um, uh, reports of 300 yard drives. I mean, I'll tell you, there's reports of 400 yard drives in just about every era that we looked at. Uh, but 
um, you know, those are anomalies, right? Uh, Those are the unusual things that happen that reporters like to talk about. Um, It's not surprising uh, that, you know, unusual conditions, uh, downhill holes, um, you know, you talked about, you know, fairways that may be like rough today. You know, we might have called those fairways actually dirt (laughs) um, if we looked at them today. That was sort of the bigger problem way back before irrigation systems was really hard, dried out turf um, that produced long hitting distances um, at times with players. Uh, But even if you set aside, you know, even if you consider that there are long players in every generation, um, that there were long drives um, in every generation, um, the data is actually pretty clear um, and it's pretty tight that there are these defined ranges and we can watch that uh, we can watch those ranges evolve and progress through time when we when we look meaningful at uh, at meaningful volumes of data Thomas is the the report is being worked on and people are collecting data and doing research before it really even began would you consider and we talked a little bit about this when I was at the USGA offices last week uh, would you consider the USGA internally to have been something of a house divided in terms of people who thought there was a problem and the data and the the input and the feedback we're going to get is really going to support that idea and just sort of give us definitively, you know, quote unquote, the proof that we need to be able to come forward and talk about it this way. Or how many people would you sort of say, or was it such that there were also a meaningful number of people that said, you know what, distance really isn't a problem. This is a perception thing because there's a few players, maybe on the PGA Tour, we see them week in and week out. The the Rory McIlroys, the Brooks Kepkas, the Dustin Johnsons of the world, Bubba Watson, etc., who they're on TV a lot, and so maybe there is the perception that everybody on tour hits it like they do, but but we know that they don't, and that distance really isn't an issue. Was it was there a pretty unified feel within the offices, or was it rather split when it came to the concept of distance? You know, I, I would say that as we went into this, that no one really came in with any sort of preconceived notions or, or bias. And, and why I say it, and I think it's one of the great things about this this project that Rain and the team undertook, this research project, is that it really is the most comprehensive that's ever been done to date. And so you take somebody in my role where perhaps I'm interacting with players at the, at the highest levels of the game and I'm watching them, mm-hmm. I may enter the conversation from one perspective, but then you have are agronomists from the green section that are seeing a completely different aspect of the game. Uh, and so by, by taking this project and really bringing it all together, I think, frankly, what it allowed for us was to have an internal discussion as well. So um, I'm not going to say that there were, there were differing views or the house divided or there was some great debate, but I think everybody just entered the conversation, entered the project from perhaps a little bit of a different perspective. And then as the data and the research and everything started to become more and more clear, I think our views and perspective as an organization and as a governing body became more clear. So, Rand, let's uh, let's get to the unveil. Obviously, people have talked uh, or having a chance to read on GolfWeek.com as well as lots of other places as well about the findings. But can you sort of give me the um, the elevator version a little bit about what what are the two or three big takeaways that you think that the recreational golfer would want to come away with when they read? Hopefully, at least the summary. But it would be great if everybody read the complete Distance Insights Project report. It is 102 pages, so it's not uh, something you're going to whip through too quickly. But what are the major takeaways for my listeners? Sure. Um, And Dave, you're actually absolutely right to stress uh, to everyone the value in reading the document. Um, Boy, it would be fun if people read 102 pages. But um, the the 15-page statement of conclusions is, I think, very clear. 
Um, and it defines the, pro- the issue, the, the issue and the question of distance in, in ways that might be a little different um, from what uh, people might be expecting uh, at the outset. Um, as they dive into that document, um, there are some, I think a lot of people would say they're sort of common sense, um, unsurprising uh, conclusions that, that come out. The first one of those is quite simply the point that hitting distance has increased uh, for more than 100 years. And, and uh, in fact, to be a little more precise, it's about 120 years. What may be unsurprising or what may be surprising if, if hitting distance increases is not surprising, what could be surprising is that it's been for every cohort, um, for men and women, uh, for elite golfers, for recreational golfers. I think we tend to define this issue narrowly as one of the elite male game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's very clear from the data is that hitting distances have increased for all golfers. So that's point number one. Point number two, um, there's a cycle here. When hitting distances increase, golf courses lengthen. Uh, you know, there's a bit of a lag uh, of a year or two, um, that uh, two or three years that sort of follow. But we see architects and owners and golf course operators and, and golfers responding to those hitting distance increases. And, and we've all asked for our golf courses to get longer. Um, there is a continuous history of golf course lengthening uh, for 120 years that follows these hitting distances. Um, and we want people to fundamentally understand that cycle. There is a cycle here of hitting distance increase leads to golf course lengthening. That's, you know, takeaway mm-hmm. uh, and important finding number one. Um, <clears throat> number two, that's putting significant pressure on our golf courses. Uh, it compromises the inherent challenge of the golf course. I think that's pretty understandable to most people. Um uh, hit your drive farther, your approach shot is shorter. Um, it changes the nature of the challenge that that golf course is providing. Uh, and the data is clear on that, on that point, um, that, uh, that those approach shots have been, have been getting shorter. Um, at the same time, um, the other imp, uh, outcome implication of that course lengthening is actually increases in uh, cost, uh, economic pressures, and environmental pressures. Longer golf courses or bigger golf courses, uh, they simply require more resources, more water, more nutrients, more energy, more labor, more land, um, all those really valuable resources that there are significant pressures on. And, and I think this may be uh, something that's sort of new. Uh, for a lot of people, when they think about this issue, again, they're defining it uh, often in this sort of smaller world of elite professional golf. What they need to understand that is that as recreational golfers, the golf course they're playing on is has felt and probably responded to these pressures historically. And that increases the cost to maintain that golf course, to build the golf course, ultimately is passed on to them. Mm-hmm. So every one of us who plays the game in some ways, I know I think the report and the research shows very clearly uh, demonstrates how this is having an impact on the costs for all of us to play the game, on the time it takes for us to play the game. Um, and, and I think it's important for people to understand. And bear with me, one more point. Um, I think the other thing that we highlight that I think was maybe unexpected as we went into the project, and, and it's interesting to watch the reactions of people. Uh, there's a lot of data that came forward to show that there's actually a problem on what we call the short side of distance or the under, other end of the game. Uh, this isn't just an issue for the longest hitters. Uh, for those of us who, who don't hit the ball 300 yards, for most of us um, who hit the ball shorter distances, most of us are playing from tees that are too long. Uh, and most of the golf courses where we play, uh, many of the golf courses where we play don't have tees that are short enough. 
um, for our shorter hitters. Um, and that's a significant problem. It creates uh, challenges for our enjoyment of the game when we're playing a golf course, that, a golf course that's fundamentally too long for our driving distance. So there's a lot there to sort of chew on, but I think a, a lot of people would agree that the, the cycle that you're describing where golfers get longer generation after generation, golf courses need to adapt. And by adapt, um, really we're talking about lengthening, getting physically bigger, because as the report outlines at the very beginning, golf by its nature is supposed to be a game that requires players to hit a wide variety of shots, um, consider risks and rewards, and take a lot of different things into consideration. And when golfers are able to use distance, elite golfers we're really talking about in, in many of these cases, are you able to use distance to take some of the risk reward factors out of the equation and basically have less reliance on variety, um, have fewer skills, quote unquote, and still be successful, that's that's deemed to be a bad thing. That goes against what the game of golf is supposed to be about. So as golfers get longer, golf courses need to expand. And as you describe and the report sort of puts forth, you're, you get into this cycle that it means the golf courses have to get bigger and you run into a lot of places that either can't afford it or don't have the room. And certainly it's hard to argue that we want, I, I've never heard anybody say, I want more chemicals dumped on my golf course. I want more <laughs> water put down. We're not, you, we're not watering enough. Um, that to me is, as you had said, that's common sense. We would love to have a game where it has a smaller environmental footprint, where we're less taxing on the environment um, and on the land that we're, we're using. That to me is almost an unarguable point. Um, but I can already hear, and we have already heard from numerous people who have been jumping up and down. And I don't know, Thomas, if this one is for you or if this Rand is, is, is a question answer for you, I'll let you guys sort of decide, but why now? I mean, people have been pointing these kinds of things out for years, decades, perhaps. I mean, really the, the big jumps, when you take a look at driving distance averages on the PGA tour, for example, we see a pretty flat level through say the 30s 40s until it's it's pretty interesting into the the 80s and even the early 90s where 260 to 262 6263 you're probably right in the average on what is I would consider to be the most elite tour of professional golf that there is in the world when you start to get then into the late 80s there's a little bit of a jump a, a small it's really around 2000 with the adoption of the solid core multi-layer ball that we see the first you know jump or hop of of distance and then titanium drivers bigger drivers get adopted and you get this sort of creep up to where where we are today um what what happened what tipped that that caused the USGA and the RNA to say we now need to do something well yeah i mean so, Dave, that's a great question and one that I think a lot of people are going to be asking. And and I, the answer is actually pretty simple. I think that the pressures the game uh, is now feeling and the pressures that we see coming in the future are more acute than they've ever been before. So you're absolutely right. I think historically, if you look at distance increases, you have two different types of increases, right? You have some pretty significant bumps or jumps up with uh, equipment innovation. And then over time, you also have some more subtle but incremental change over time. And so you're right, this graph you're describing, you sort of have a spike and then more of a gradual uphill spike, gradual uphill until we find ourselves where we, where we are today. But fundamentally, when you step back and you look at the problems that Rand is describing, the pressures that the game is feeling are, are is feeling now 
those pressures are far more uh, uh, heightened than they were uh, even a decade ago. And so as we became more aware of that, as we identified those pressures, I think now we, we recognize uh, was the time to act or is the time to act and to really continue this dialogue, take, take ourselves into the next phase of identifying what solutions uh, might be available to help mitigate and end this ongoing cycle. lovers are always looking for new and engaging content. The Already Gone podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before, like the Mayo Hunters or the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello, plus better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite podcatcher. Hey, ever hear about the ex-football star who robbed a Brinks truck, then tucked $400,000 under his arm like a football, and escaped using an inner tube? No? Then you'll want to listen to Season 1 of The Sneak, a podcast by For the Win and USA Today Sports. Here, take a quick listen to the man who actually pulled that off. In 2008, a former D1 football star pulled off a robbery so daring and so strange that it went viral worldwide. It was a perfect crime story. There was just one problem. It wasn't the real story of what happened. The Sneak is a new, serialized true crime podcast from For the Win and USA Today Sports. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or get it anywhere you get podcasts on Tuesday, January 14th. So one of the big groups that's going to want to weigh in on all of these things before we sort of get into potential solutions is going to be golf club manufacturers, golf ball manufacturers, et cetera, all the equipment companies. How much of a say did they have and how much input and feedback did you elicit from them in gathering the data? It's one thing to go into the archives and look for trends and you discover there is a trend in distance off the tee. There's a trend in golf courses getting longer. To what degree did equipment makers have a say in the process that went into the creation of the report? So let me start with an answer on that one, which is simply to say when we we started the project uh, almost two years ago, we extended an invitation to the entire golf community um, to submit uh, perspectives, uh, data, uh, thoughts, information. Uh, we very intentionally wanted this to be collaborative uh, mm-hmm. from the start, um, and I think it's I think it's fair to say that we were pretty successful uh, in, in a couple different respects there. Um, and there were some different mechanisms and, and ways for them to participate, um, and, and they certainly did. You know, one of those uh, was a stakeholder survey. Uh, we had a partner SMS that helped us put together a survey uh, that was posted on the USGA and the RNA websites. Um, and distributed to stakeholders, and we encouraged them uh, to offer perspectives and feedback through that survey. Uh, in the end, we had more than 60,000 individuals responded to that survey, um, and certainly there were there were quotas um, for sort of different stakeholder groups to make sure you know we wanted minimums. Minimally, we needed to hear from X number of architects and X number of superintendents, and right so that the the feedback wouldn't be 
skewed uh, because it overrepresents one stakeholder group over another. One of those was the equipment manufacturers, and um, and we can when we know through that process that uh, many of them participated and submitted feedback um, simply as part of that survey. Uh, more broadly, there was this request for an invitation for data uh, and information. I can tell you uh, that a few of the major equipment manufacturers uh, submitted um, reports and and perspectives to us um, through that process. Um, and all that information, all that data, all those feedbacks, um, they, uh, you know, as a research team, um, we looked at all of that very carefully. It helped shape uh, some of the questions that we were asking. Uh, you know, it guided some of the, uh, the areas of, of research that we ultimately pursued. Um, and, and then at the same time, uh, the data where they shared data or information perspectives um, you know, where, where we could, that is included in the report. In some cases, um, because of the proprietary nature of, of some of their submissions, they sure. asked for uh, information not to be included, and, and certainly we're going to respect that. But um, I can tell you that uh, the information, the invitation was extended, uh, and many of, them, um, many of them took advantage and contributed to that process. So the, the next obvious sort of question, because that's the kind I specialize in, the obvious ones, is wh where do we go from here? I guess, Thomas, if you could sort of explain if the USGA and the RNA have now defined that we have a problem with these matching trends um, of golfers hitting the ball farther and of golf courses getting longer, what do we do? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. I guess uh, I'll start by just wanting to be very clear uh, in case any of your listeners haven't had a chance to read the 15-page document to this point. Uh, we are not coming out and, and recommending any solutions to the problem today. Uh, what we're doing is we, we are identifying the problem, want to begin a dialogue with the golf community, including the manufacturers, uh, which are going to be critical in this. Um, and this, So our view is all about the long-term, you know, the future health of the game, and what can we do to mitigate against this cycle of, of increased distance? And if you look at all the contributing factors that Rand talked through earlier, right, you have certainly you have equipment, but then you have oh, athleticism, you have course conditioning, you have swing techniques and players' access to data. Um, you know, with respect to the player, the athleticism and the swing techniques, I mean, th that, those are areas that uh, we, we have no interest in wanting to try and go in and debate or discuss. Frankly, we admire the player's ability. And so as we look forward, really the, the one area we want to focus on relates to equipment and the potential for uh, looking at an overall assessment uh, as it relates to the specifications for clubs and balls or the equipment rules. Uh, when I say that, it sounds big. It sounds ominous. I will just say that, you know, our intention right now uh, as the governing bodies is not to um, go out and suggest any changes to the equipment rules that would result in uh, substantial uh, decreases in distance across all levels of the game. Uh, I think it's important for people to know that. What we want to do now is share with the industry that, again, we've identified a problem. Let's have a discussion. So that the report we released this week acts as what we call an area of interest notice. Mm -hmm. And so it just signals to the manufacturing community that we believe distance is a problem, and we want to have a discussion around what solutions there could be potentially in the future to help address or deal with this problem. Uh, within 45 days from now, uh, we're going to have a meeting with our Equipment Standards Committee, as will the RNA, and we're going to actually come out with a more specific list of topics okay. uh, for manufacturers to, to respond to. So we'll come out and say, we're really interested in looking at 
X and Y with the ball and Z with the club. And then we'll ha- we'll probably take nine to 12 months, frankly, to have that discussion with the manufacturing community to get their feedback, to understand any additional data that they might have so that, again, as we move into this process, we can be fully informed and hopefully collaborate as a golf community. With, with, at the end of the day, it's about the long-term health. And we think that if we all can commit to that vision, commit to that objective, that we can have some meaningful discussions. So in listening to all that, I, I get it. And it's pretty much what, what I've come to understand. And for people who are out there listening to this, no one's taking your driver away. No one's taking your Pro V1s or your Callaway Chrome Softs away. Nothing is going to happen. And really, when you're talking, if I understand it right, Thomas, about timeframes, um, 9 to 12 months or so to to complete some of the projects that you're looking to initiate, they haven't started yet, if I understand it correctly, then you're going to have to Correct. evaluate and see, well, well, what did we really learn? So now we're into the first quarter to the first half of 2021. Um, and then there's a series of steps, if it is deemed that certain changes are going to take place, whether it's to golf clubs, to golf balls, something on the equipment set, there are a, there's a certain step or protocol, if you will, that, that needs to happen, the dialogue between the USG and the RNA and the equipment manufacturers. Can you sort of walk through how that works? Um, if you want to sound really golfy to your buddies in the grill room, everybody, <laughs> drop the name the Vancouver Protocol, and they're just going to all walk away. But explain to people what sort of the process is because this is not something if i understand it right that is going to happen anywhere close to overnight uh, that's right i think i think you've you've summarized it well and, and the, the key takeaway there for folks listening is that nothing's going to happen overnight we do have a very intentional deliberate uh set of protocols for the equipment rulemaking process you referenced it there the vancouver protocol that we initiated in 2011 with our partners at the rna and the manufacturing community and so i mentioned before this paper signals an area of interest, which is the first step. That will get us into uh, mid part of 2021, as you suggest. And then after we've had a chance to analyze the additional feedback, analyze the data, uh, the governing bodies will then uh, make a determination as to whether or not there are changes to the equipment rules that should be made. And if we determine that there's a change or changes that, that we feel should be made, again, to, to mitigate against this issue, we would we then release what we call a notice and comment. And that notice and comment has a proposed rule. So here are the changes that we're suggesting, as well as an implementation plan. Because uh, unlike the plane rules, I mean, with the equipment rules, sometimes you have to foreshadow this stuff out several years and say, here's Absolutely. the plane rule. But you know what? It's not going to take effect until X date. That allows for the manufacturer to go through R&D. It allows for uh, a, a number of considerations. And so that notice and comment, then we give, once we've released that, we give the manufacturing community some period of time to uh, pr- to provide feedback on the specific rule and the implementation plan. Depending on how significant that is, that could take upwards of another, you know, six, nine, twelve months. It's really and so at that point, we're two years out from today, and we've only taken feedback on a proposed rule, let alone implemented anything. So right. this entire process takes time. As I mentioned before, it's critical that the manufacturing community be engaged and they participate in this process. These protocols were put in place so that we as the equipment rulemakers could have a level of transparency with our with our process, but also invite the manufacturers in to participate and have those conversations. So for those of you who may not recall, there was a groove rule change that went into effect in 2010. And it basically mandated that the grooves in all clubs, it wasn't just wedges, that's a misconception that some people have, it was all clubs, I believe, over 25 degrees in loft, 
um, had to have grooves that essentially became less sharp and the volume, overall volume of the grooves was reduced. Um, that rule also had a grandfather clause for those of us who are recreational golfers that said if you bought some of those groove, uh, those, those wedges, say for example, in 2009, unlike Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy, who could no longer use them in, uh, PGA tour events, you could play them all the way through to today. You can play them until 2024. So when you hear that there are equipment changes that might happen somewhere down the line, these are the kind of timeframes we're talking about. And the other thing that goes into consideration, and I'm sure it would be part of the dialogue that you would have if it came to this with manufacturers is there's real jobs and real money for these companies. If you were to say, say, we're going to make a change to the golf ball, whatever it was going to be, hypothetically, um, there is R and D that's involved. There's the actual manufacturing involved. Um, there is factory work and people who are involved in these different things. It's, it's not something that changes on a dime. And when you think about the golf industry globally, not just in the United States, I mean, yes, we're the biggest market, but globally, um, Titleist makes tens of millions of dozens of Pro V1s and Pro V1Xs. Callaway is making millions and millions of golf balls, as is TaylorMade, as is Bridgestone. That that kind of a ship doesn't just turn on a dime. So it, it you're talking several months, if not a year, to physically manufacture all the stuff. So take heart, everybody who's listening to this. There's not a chance in heck that you're going to be mandated to make any equipment changes of any substance anytime soon. It's just as... Thomas is just sort of laying out that we're in the very beginning of the conversation and the conversation has to start somewhere. And this is where we're starting it. Um, by the way, I think Vancouver protocol would be a great Robert Ludlum spy novel. I mean, you could have the Ryan man exchange, <laughs> um, you know, the whole born supremacy and then go right into the Vancouver protocol. Um, one of the things in, in listening to all this though, is I bring up sort of the grooves and, and I think it's worth noting and I'd like to get one of you to respond to it. We had a groove rule change in 2010, which frankly to me didn't do a whole heck of a lot. Um, we had the change in the ban in anchored putting strokes. It was not an equipment ban. It was a technique ban, if you will. You were not allowed to anchor a putter to your body. Um, that went into effect in, I believe it was 2016. Now we're talking about there's a problem with distance. And, and I understand that... It's it's really the the main focus of the report is at the elite men's game, but you're saying it's a it's a problem throughout golf, and it's been a problem and such like that. A lot of people are going to take a listen to this and they're going to read different things and say they're trying to make golf harder and harder. They took away the big grooves. They're saying I can't anchor, and now they're saying that I hit the ball too far. How would you respond to people who are going to be of that opinion or going to hold the the whole idea that? This is just another way that the USGA and the RNA, the governing bodies of the game, are just trying to make – they're just going to wind up making the game harder for me. Yeah, I mean, look, this is uh, – again, let's be clear. I think as the governing bodies, we look at the game and we see the strengths of the game today. We, we see the game of golf, the sport of golf, being uh, in a really strong position. Uh, we see it as being welcoming. We see it as being inclusive. Um, we, we're excited. Uh, about the future, but at the same point, we do look at this problem of distance, uh, and we think that it could uh, harm the long-term health of the game. And so for the game to grow and be healthy and vibrant, you need the ability for it to grow, and you need to be in a sustainable place. So this is not about taking the fun away. This certainly is not about making it hard or harder. Uh, the game's always been hard. Uh, yes. I think that if we if we collaborate with this, I mean, the one takeaway would be 
And I think our past actions through recent rules changes, whether that be uh, the rules of golf or otherwise, show that we are really interested as a governing body of engaging with the golf community at all levels of the game, having discussions, identifying solutions and working together and really rallying around the game. And that's what we want to continue with here. Uh, and so this is, again, not about uh, not about having any negative impact. It's about ensuring that uh, this game we all love, that frankly, we have a healthy game for the next generations to uh, participate in and enjoy as well. So one of the calls, so there was a conference call, everybody on Tuesday morning, Martin Slumbers, who runs the RNA and um, Mike Davis, who's the CEO of the USGA, were speaking with media and basically announcing that the Distance Insight Project report was being released. They went through and gave some some broad overviews on it. One of the questions that came up, and I didn't fully get the answer on it, so I'm going to put it to you, and I'm not sure if you're going to be able to answer it either, is let's say, for example, that um, we know that golf courses um, have been getting longer and longer. What are golf courses that are already existing supposed to do in order to either reduce their footprint or try and reduce costs is, is we're sort of recognizing these problems. A lot of places may be saying like, okay, well, if at some point down the line distance is reduced, whether through equipment or through local rule, which I want to get into in just a second. Um, but what are they sort of going to be thinking about when they hear all of a sudden we want to make and have and promote smaller ballparks for our game. And here they are, they already have back tees. And if they are at say 6,900 or 7,000 yards in length, um, how does a golf course that already exists receive the information that you're, you're giving out? And then what action do they take off of it? So I'll, I'll jump in here and, and Dave, it may be an answer that's a little less directional from, from what you're sort of trying to lead toward um, and, and simply say, you know, I think at this point in time, we would encourage every golf course owner, operator, you know, architect, as we do every golfer, um, to read uh, the statement of conclusions paper, mm-hmm. um, to think about it as thoughtfully as they can, um, talk about it um, with their golfers, um, you know, talk about it with their fellow course owners and operators, um, invite them into the dialogue that we all want to have uh, as we move forward, right? This is supposed to be a collaborative process um, there is a lot of discussion that we all need to have. I don't know that there is an answer uh, today to say, boy, here's the next step you should take. Okay. But, you know, I would encourage each of those owners and operators, to, again, reflect on what we're saying. Uh, think about some of the challenges they've had. Think about some of the opportunities um, they might have to, uh, you know, through, for- through the use of forward tees, through encouraging their golfers to play from appropriate sets of tees, right? How can they help create and foster better experiences for their customers and at the same time support and create stronger businesses for themselves? Um, the answer is going to be a little bit different for each of those facilities. And this mm-hmm. is one of the things that's amazing about the game, right? 35,000 unique golf courses, each of them serving, you know, a different a little bit different set of golfers, each of them with their own specific challenges and opportunities. So it's going to mean something different for everyone. Um, but I think that there are some bigger issues to reflect on. Yep. How do I importantly create uh, a better experience for my players so that my golfers keep coming back and they want to play more and more? Um, and and, the, and the, you know, the short side of distance issue that we've highlighted talks about that. And then at the same time, how do I make sure that my business stays sustainable and thrives? 
um, in, a, in an environment where water costs escalate, you know, right. rates much higher than, than inflation in most parts of the world, where energy costs continue to climb, uh, where labor's becoming, you know, in some parts of the U.S., scarcer, um, and labor costs are going up. Um, you know, against that landscape, how do they create uh, a strong future? The fundamental definition I often talk about, you know, a sustainable game. If golf's going to be sustainable in the future, A, we have to have golfers. B, they actually have to have a place to play. Um, and if, if those golf courses are under such pressure that, that they're closing, and Lord knows we've seen a lot of golf courses close yeah. um, in the last couple of years, right? If there are pressures and we want our game to be healthy, strong, and sustainable, those facilities have to be available. They have to be in existence for people to play at, and they've got to be offering great experiences. Um, so for now, what I would encourage people, uh, owners and operators, is to think about those sort of fundamental questions. How do I strengthen my business and how do I create great golf experiences so that people continue to love the game as much in the years ahead as they have in the past? So had I gone to journalism school, one of the things that they would have taught me is to not bury the lead on some of these things. And I think we've covered most of what I would consider to be the lead. But one of the stories and one of the angles that's in the Distance Insights Project, um, Thomas, that is going to get a lot of interest or it's going to get a lot of pop and it, it already sort of is out on social media is a concept that is put forward about the the adoption of a local rule that would allow committees, tournament organizers, local clubs, facilities, etc., to mandate or to propose to mandate the distance reducing balls, clubs, equipment in general be used in certain tournaments or events. Um, could you explain the idea behind that? Because a lot of people are going to hear local rule and immediately say, oh, bifurcation and that's really not what you're trying to to get accomplished with that with that inclusion of the, the whole idea of local rule is it yeah uh, that, that's right i mean I, I guess i'll start uh at a high level and just explain you know local rules uh they've, they've been around and they've been part of the game since the rules were first written in the mid 1700s and they're intended to be used uh, at golf courses for specific issues that that might be relative to that golf course or unique issues uh certainly there are some equipment related uh, local rules that already exist. And what we're doing is we go into this and we look at the overall specifications for clubs and balls. One of the things we also want to signal to the golf community is let's explore the option of what it would look like uh, if we were to have a potential, the potential use of a local rule that had a separate set of conforming equipment, but that conforming equipment had a different set of specifications. So it would be reduced distance balls or clubs. And would this concept benefit the game if clubs at all levels, and this is not just the elite level, you could have golf courses, you could have leagues, you could have tournament organizers, or you could have uh, uh, major competitions that would uh, use this reduced equipment um, uh, by local rule. And so, again, no solutions have been met. I think that's the one thing we're seeing is people are rushing to that and they're suggesting that, oh, they've reached this solution over the local rule. All we're trying to say is it's, a, it's one of the options that we want to look at as we go through this process and really have those discussions we talked about over the next nine to 12 months. I think that one of the biggest challenges, I think there's a couple challenges to, to that potentially being successful is that number one, it, it just by its very nature would be a subset, if I understand it correctly, of the conforming clubs that are right now being offered. So you're talking about a very small percentage of the overall equipment that's going to be offered by the manufacturers, which means it's going to be really hard for them to sell and make any money off of. And these are individual businesses. They're, they do a lot of philanthropic work, but they're in business to make money if they're public 
to return value to shareholders. And that's, that's what business is. It doesn't need to apologize for anything. Um, so the idea of we want to, or we need to make equipment for a relatively small number of players out there, and it's not going to perform to the maximum that our other products perform. It's, it's, going to be challenging to get, I would imagine, the OEMs uh, on board with that. I mean, they, it's it's hard to get excited about not hitting it far. Um, and maybe that's part of the psychology that we need to adjust or that the USGA and the RNA are going to have to work on, which is sort of the second challenge, I guess, is, um, yeah, getting excited more about the score and did you win the match rather than what a lot of people look for and they get satisfaction from, which is I'm hitting the ball farther I feel like I'm hitting it better than I did two years ago, three years ago. Mm. You know, equipment is helping me to do that. Maybe, hopefully, they're taking lessons from a PGA of America Pro. They're getting better. All these different things we're talking about. But would you agree that that's going to be one of the big challenges to getting the local rule off the ground? Is that a you've got to get manufacturers to make this stuff, which is a challenge, and then you've got to get people excited about going ahead and using it. Yeah, I mean, see, Dave, even there, I feel like we're almost getting a little ahead of ourselves by, by talking about getting off the ground because, you know, as, as we've said, this is just just a concept, just something that we think is worth assessing and having a discussion. Okay. So as we have those discussions, we might we might very well hear exactly what you're saying, or we might we might be surprised and hear something else. We might we might hear of players that start talking about uh, more urban focused, small uh, footprinted golf courses where. They want an experience that's maybe a little bit different than a pitch and putt. And uh, pitch and putt. And can can there be a set of conforming equipment that could allow for them to have that kind of experience? And so everyone goes straight to the elite level. But that's where I tried to say that you know this option could be available at, at all levels of the game. So uh, again, the conversations are no no doubt going to be very good. Uh, they're going to help inform because I think it's important as governing bodies that whatever direction we 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 end up going that that our viewpoint be fully informed by all stakeholders. And so uh, we're excited, frankly, to have released a report today and be able to start to have those discussions. For anybody who's vaguely interested in the game of golf and the future of it, I, I can't recommend enough and encourage you enough to go up to the USGA's website, check out the Distance Insights Project report. You can download it, read it for yourself. There are also, if you if that's not enough, there are 56 little reports that are <laughs> off on the website as well. If uh, if you finish reading the rest of the internet, you can you can dive in on, on those guys as well tonight. Um, it's it's something that's an important topic, and it's an important topic that's not going to go away anytime soon. And if you want to take part in the debate, you should be armed at least with some of the facts and some of the information that's that's going to be out there. So, um, Thomas and Rand, I really appreciate you give you guys giving me some time today. I know you're extremely busy. Thank you very much for uh, for appearing on the Forward Press. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks hey, for having thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, and thanks for helping us uh, share the story about the work and uh, helping helping us uh, explain it and make it relevant to all your listeners. We really appreciate it. You got it. it. Thanks a lot. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of. Uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.